Hello again. My name is Allison B. Young, and welcome back to Gathered Storied Botanicals. It's been a while. I'm sorry to have kept you waiting outside those gates for all this time. It seems since the introductory episode of this podcast, I've been in a state of dormancy. Despite going through the motions, moving through each season, even the lively summertime, I had burrowed myself away, unable to write or really even gather my thoughts. Perhaps you've felt this before. When you're unable to work at or pursue the thing you love, you begin to feel you might fall away from it for good. Meanwhile, the stuff of life, the day job, the bills, all the minutiae that comes with seeking that baseline of stability buries you, covers you like snow. And maybe as you've done in these frustrating or disheartening lulls, I let myself go into this hibernation, hoping that I'd have stored enough reserves to live off of until I could get back to it. Finding that baseline, that stability is where I've been, and it's been something of a Rip Van Winkle kind of slumber. This span of time that has passed me by in almost deceiving speed, all the while feeling that just a few days have gone by. Looking back on the first episode, it's hard to believe how long ago it was. For that, I want to apologize, my slipping away like that. I've missed it, and I hope I might be able to renew your interest or pique it for the first time as I plod ahead. The year flew by. Summer boiled and simmered into the crisp darkening of fall, then winter. It threw its cover over all of us with shorter days and longer nights. It drew us all in to hunker down, perhaps reflect on the year gone by. Approaching that cusp of winter was around the time that a new flurry of activity began to take place at the flower shop. Even as the days became shorter, passers-by would see the warm glow of the shop lights well into the night. Inside we'd be busy. Weddings had a way of raging on relentlessly through the fall, but also orders for Thanksgiving centerpieces began to pour in. Even the occasional floral arrangement for a Halloween party, which were especially fun to make. Flowers of the summer, zinnias, coxcomb, and snapdragons began to wane and make room for the more autumnal blooms and colors. The rust red oranges of mums, rose hips, black-eyed Susans, the bright golds of sunflowers filled the cooler. Even the occasional deep, deep purple that we see as black arrived at the shop. Chocolate cosmos, witches' boots, calla lilies, and black dahlias. And amidst all of this, we'd also receive shipments of bulbs. They'd arrive dormant, not nearly as bright or colorful to unpack as the flowers already in bloom and ready for a vase or bouquet. They were pre-buried and in their own Van Winkle state. We set out these brown, tired-looking bulbs around the shop, potted up in festive containers in anticipation for the fast-approaching holidays. Occasionally, we tried to dress them up by tucking moss around them or tying a bow around the rim of the pot, but... More often they sat on shelves or in windows looking lifeless and kind of dull. Also around that same time of year, 
is how the story of Rip Van Winkle began when he wandered off in the woods toward the place of his slumber. It is a story that we likely all know or remember in some variation from our childhoods, some distant retelling. First published in 1819, Washington Irving wrote the story of Rip, as he too was coming out of a rut of his own writer's block. He had been in financial trouble, having to declare bankruptcy while struggling to support his family. A conversation with his brother-in-law one night lulled him in a nostalgic or introspective mood, and while the two reminisced, perhaps of a past with fewer troubles, Irving was suddenly struck with an idea and rushed to his room to scrawl out this story. It was published in a collection of some of Irving's other stories and essays, and it sits alongside his other famous tale, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Though there aren't the same frightening overtones to Rip Van Winkle, Irving captures the allure and mystical quality of the natural world, specifically along the Hudson River and the Catskill Mountains. It is a region steeped in its own folklore, going back beyond the Dutch settlements that sprouted up to the stories told by Native American tribes. It was believed that the mountains housed the Manitou, a spirit or life force prevalent in the mythology of many indigenous groups in that region. In a postscript of Washington Irving's piece, he writes of this spirit. She dwelt on the highest peak of the Catskills, and had charge of the doors of day and night, to open and shut them at the proper hour. She hung up the new moons in the skies and cut up the old ones into stars. Another more mischievous spirit made a habit of disguising himself as a bear or deer to lead weary hunters off into especially desolate or treacherous parts of the wilderness. Regardless of what you might believe, I think it's safe to say Washington Irving reaped a lot of inspiration from the landscape. And with that came the character of Rip Van Winkle. Irving characterizes him as one of those happy mortals of foolish, well-oiled dispositions. He also calls him a naturally thirsty soul, a phrase that feels fitting to both human life and plant life, despite the differing connotations. The story begins by describing him as a lovable character in his small community. Accommodating and amiable, he taught the children to fly kites and built toys for them. He sat with the other townsmen, smoking his pipe and pondering the philosophical and political state of the settlement, the land that they inhabited. Even the dogs in town followed him with a certain adoration. Perhaps Rip's main flaw was his lack of ambition. His wife, Dame Van Winkle, made it known to him frequently, and so in an effort to appease his wife and provide for his own family, he set off into the woods one autumnal day to hunt squirrels. As night began to fall, Rip could hear distant thunder and suspected a storm might be brewing, and he had traveled far from town and deep in the woods. Just as worry began to set in, he heard his name being called out by a mysterious man through the trees. A stranger to Rip, but the man waved him over to help haul a keg up the steep incline of the mountain. Being the amiable, albeit 
maybe naive character that he was, Rip obliged without questioning the strangely dressed and bearded man. Once on the mountain, he discovered a whole brood of these woolly men drinking and playing ninepins, a game not unlike bowling. The oddity of it, though, was that the sound of thunder came from the ball striking the pins. I can imagine how peculiar the scene must have looked, already slipping into the surreal. The group looking haggard and solemn, despite playing a game with friends and having some drinks. Rip joined them, perhaps overindulged a little, and drifted off to sleep under a tree. When he woke, he believed that he'd slept through the night. The men and their games from before had disappeared. So disoriented and feeling something amiss, he began to wander back down the mountain. We've all been there. Well, maybe not Rip Van Winkle's exact circumstance, falling asleep for 20 years. But I'd venture to say we've all slept that deep, heavy sleep. That when we woke, we required that extra time to adjust back to the waking world, recalibrate our sense of reality, shake the grogginess off, try to reconcile those half-forgotten dreams, and stretch out the stiffness in our limbs. I know I've felt that, and I felt as though I recognized that deep sleep passing by those bulbs in the flower shop, waiting for any sign of life to emerge from them. The key was patience. You see, although they may not require the same level of attention or maintenance as When someone sows seeds, a bulb requires this state of dormancy to sprout and ultimately flower. One source refers to this sleep-like state as suspended animation, and it typically lasts six to eight weeks when we nudge the bulb out of its natural and seasonal cycle and compel it to start growing indoors and in accordance with our own calendars. Also, unlike a seed, which is considered an embryo of sorts, with a protective coating over it, a bulb is defined as a structure, something that already houses a plant's complete life cycle within its layers of modified leaves, or what horticulturists call scales. It lives, thrives underground, even though we don't see it. If you think of an onion, you'll have the gist of what a bulb looks like and its function. True bulbs, corms, tubers, tuberous roots, rhizomes, and fleshy roots make up all these different types of bulbs or storage structures that are grown and propagated. And from these, bloom daffodils, hyacinth, tulips, and many more. And it is this one particular bulb that has managed so well indoors a bulb that could be considered as flexible or accommodating as Van Winkle himself, for us to alter its sleep pattern, its very bloom cycle. It is the same type of bulb that we unpack shipments of, that we set out around the flower shop in hopes people will take them home and continue this tradition. This particular bulb becomes the amaryllis flower. It is a large, vibrant flower that blooms on top of a tall, thick stem almost stalk-like. When in bloom, it's about the size of an outstretched hand. Not quite as delicate looking as a lily, the amaryllis has six petals giving it that star shape, and this hardy looking flower seems to defy gravity, rearing its head up from its tall stem. From a rich, deep red to shades of peach or apricot, 
to crisp white. The amaryllis comes in many variations of colors, solid and differing striation patterns. Near the base, long leaves in a rich shade of green sprout and rise up alongside the stem. It's a bit of a deceiver, or at least could be considered enigmatic, for its name, amaryllis, is actually the botanical name for a different flower. Amaryllis can refer to the genus of the belladonna lily, also known as Jersey lily, naked lady, or in South Africa where it originates, the March lily. The amaryllis flower I'm going to talk about actually belongs to the genus of Hippeastrum. The term of Hippeastrum was coined by William Herbert, a British botanist, botanical illustrator, poet, and clergyman living in the 1800s. The term means night's star lily, and when I say knight, it's the knight in shining armor who battles dragons. Though he never gave a clear explanation as to why Hippeastrum was the ideal name, there are a few theories. The first, it was believed that he felt the shape of the large bloom resembled that of a horse's face, especially in reference to the specific species Hippeastrum equestre. Another possibility is that the flower has also been compared to a knight's honor, such as an order of chivalry or knighthood. These were star-shaped medals given as an honor to royalty or for achievements in the military. Think of a sheriff's badge that goes back to the 15th century. The third and possibly most bizarre comparison has been linking the amaryllis flower to the morning star a medieval weapon. Similar to a mace, a morning star is an iron club with spikes on the end meant to both inflict blunt force as well as the ability to puncture an enemy. Whatever the reason, it could be that William Herbert, who published a book of Greek and Latin poetry as well, took from his own poetic inclination in coining the name Far from South Africa, this amaryllis is native to South America, in particular along the Andes Mountains. It is believed that the Portuguese, or Spanish, first brought the bulb to Europe in the 16th century, but German botanist Edward Friedrich Perping discovered the amaryllis hippeastrum in Chile while on an expedition in 1828. He too had wandered into the wilderness on a hunt, though a different mountain range, certainly housing its own mystique or aura as the Catskills. There are about 90 species of amaryllis, and their ideal climbs vary, only making it more of an enigmatic bloom. Certain species are known to flourish in a tropical understory environment, where others do better in full sun in a drier climate. Types of amaryllis could be found as far north as Mexico, and for some time, they relied primarily on hummingbirds and moths as their pollinators. But over the centuries, human influence has coaxed the bulb to be easily transportable and marketable. In this way, I imagine we aren't all that different from the woolly men coaxing Rip Van Winkle up the mountain to his dreamlike state. Because of us, we have been able to dig up these bulbs, propagate, hybridize and sell them across the globe so that we could fill out our own gardens, flower beds, 
or even within our own homes. For Rip Van Winkle, it would be an understatement to say that his discovery of the true length of his sleep was jarring. To have slept through years, decades of his life, is a kind of displacement I can only imagine. To have lost seeing his children grow up. To have missed being by his wife's side when she aged and passed away. To lack the gravity or understanding of the American Revolution sweeping through and transforming his small town. His return risked him being shunned, his own sanity put into question. If not for his children, his daughter, he may never have regained his own waking world. Through that support system, Rip was able to adjust, recalibrate back into the waking world. During my own dormant state, or creative block, I decided to revisit the Art Institute in hopes I might regain my footing with my own work. Wandering through the expansive exhibit halls, I stumbled upon a painting of this very story of Rip Van Winkle after he's awoken and returned to his town. John Quidor is the painter. The plaque accompanying the painting gives the viewer a little context and offers this insight. Unlike many portrayals of Rip Van Winkle that emphasize his age and confusion, Quidor's version casts Rip as strong and defiant. Gesturing forcefully at his son, Rip acts to regain his sense of belonging in a now unfamiliar world. Perhaps this is a little far-fetched, but I'd like to think of the Amaryllis in this way. When they began to shoot up from that dull brown bulb and unfold as the brilliant flowers that they are, they too look strong and defiant. It also strikes me as an interesting coincidence that the year this painting was made, 1829, is a year after that German botanist discovered the Amaryllis on a hillside of the Andes Mountains. I wonder if when these bulbs wake and bloom to show their vibrant, bold faces, that they feel the same daze or disorientation of waking in a new place and a new time as Rip did. The idea that they've been dormant, sleeping as it were all this time begs the question of what inner workings must take place in the folds and layers of their bulbs, their kind of slumber. What if the Amaryllis could dream? And through generations of these flowers, what stored dreams or memories might they pass on each winter? Could they hearken back to the dampness of the Andes Mountains? Might they think of the condors gliding overhead, or a spirit passing them by? Or do they dream of reclaiming their belonging once they wake, no matter how unfamiliar the land they inhabit might seem. I'd like to think so. If you've enjoyed today's episode or are curious to learn more, please subscribe to Apple Podcasts or wherever you find audio and visit my website at gatheredstoriedbotanicals.com. That's gathered-storiedbotanicals.com. There, you'll find a blog with a transcript of today's episode and a bibliography of sources, as well as some images of the varying amaryllis blooms that growers and botanical illustrators have created. 
There's also a link to Instagram where I'll showcase floral designs I've put together as a visual component to each episode. Please follow along if you'd like to bring some flowers into your life. And tune in for the next episode, airing March 18th. And thank you for listening. I last left you along those winding, alligator-infested roads in South Carolina's low country. I do still hope you'll join me on the other side of those all brass gates. I think you'll find it's worth the wait. Until next time.